Hello everybody and welcome to the GMS Magazine channel. I am Paco Garcia. This is the first of a whole series of interviews that we're going to be conducting in the channel with some of the most toppest, amazing people in the RPG industry. You will also be able to listen to this in podcast format since this is going to be published in both formats. Um, we're going to kick this series talking to one of the uh, just absolutely adorable persons and most knowledgeable in the industry regarding editing. I'm talking about Ling Hardy. Uh, she's one of the top editors for Chaosium and has done an insane amount of work for so many books and so many companies, including Green Groaning and Modifius and so many others, that Hercules is absolutely undeniable. But I wanted to talk to her about something that has been pondering in my mind for a very long time. And it's the difference between realism and verisimilitude. Because some people want to have realistic uh, experiences and keep realism in their games. But in reality, what we need is to have some verisimilitude, which is a completely different thing. Anyway, I'm not going to rumble about this. Please remember to subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so yet. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't done so yet. Leave us a comment. And if you're listening to the podcast, please, please, please leave us a review in iTunes because that helps us immensely to be found and enjoyed by other people. But without further ado, here is Dr. Ling Hardy. Uh, Ling, um, how nice to see you and have you in the podcast at last, since I haven't spoken to you for two years, since we saw us, well, not nearly three, since we saw us at um, each other at uh, Spiegel in 2017. That's right, yes. It's amazing how time flies, isn't it? It, it does. It has that absolutely unpleasant tradition of just <laughs> flying without saying anything at all, and suddenly you realise that, oh, shit. Uh, where did the last three months go? <laughs> Just I, I woke up and it's March. This is terrible. So <laughs> it's not March yet, Paco. Please, <laughs> it's going fast enough as it I is. Know. I will tell, I'll tell me about it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So anyway, I'm, I haven't had you in the podcast before, so I know that you can answer questions in real life. Mm-hmm. Now we have to make sure that you can answer questions in in podcasts. So just to warm up, I'm going to ask you five really silly things. Um, mm. Question number one. Tea or coffee? Oh, no, that depends on the time of day. Okay, I choose one. Tea. Okay, thank you. That's a very good answer. Um, uh, cars or motorbikes? Cars. Okay. Um, the beach or the mountain? The mountain. Okay. Uh, now, this is getting a little bit hard. Uh, fantasy or science fiction? Oh, that's mean. Oh, because I prefer science fiction films, but fantasy books. Ah. Okay. I am remaining neutral. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Switzerland, no fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and last question, which is by no means any less mean. Um, zombies or vampires? Neither werewolves all the way oh my god you gave me a uh, oh now i have to change that question oh my god okay (laughs) (laughs) okay now nonsense aside um i wanted to have you around because you do 
you specialize in doing a very uh, crucial bit of work that I know for a lot of people, especially directors in Hollywood, completely ignore, um, which is finding gaps and holes in stories and in places, which I wanted to talk to you about that. And because there is a very big difference between having realism and having verisimilitude in games, because finding those gaps, that's all about having the verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what, for you, as as, a, as an editor, is the difference between having realism and when does realism matters, and when does verisimilitude should take over? Verisimilitude to take over when it means the game is playable and enjoyable. Okay. Because if you make everything desperately realistic, in certain settings you're limiting the player's ability to interact with the world and to affect it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're doing a historical game and you want everything to be real and accurate, then there isn't an awful lot the players can do uh, because they're going to be changing history. They're going to be doing terrible things usually to historic sites and or people. <laughs> so realism has to go out of the window or they just can't do anything. They're completely constrained by it. So realism is good for setting most of the framework and this is something um we've had a chat with uh ben aranovich about for rivers of london as well Mm -hmm. Uh, and in ben's case he goes for 90 percent realism so that he can then slide in the strange stuff and people are more accepting of it and that's certainly something i've always find found is that it's a lot easier to sell the lie if it's bedded in truth you said you can't be 100% accurate and realistic because otherwise you're really limiting your options and potentials as long as it feels real it doesn't have to be real and that is what make is make it verisimil it makes yes. it believable so at what point because um, I hear that um, but then if we're going to make it 90% realistic we cannot have 90% of things you know we cannot have 90% of fireballs and um, we can have 90% of Cthulhu um, at least <laughs> uh, maybe 100% of Cthulhu um, because there is absolutely nothing real about those things and yet they have to be believable so how how do you mix that 90% of realism with the 90% fantasy or horror that we are used to It's a really tricky balancing act because, as you said, it's not real. It's not realistic in any way, shape or form. Cthulhu is not sleeping in relay. Um, I hate to break this to you. Terribly Mm -hmm. sorry. Um, But, you know, if everything else is coherent and hangs together, then you can sell that lie and people will accept it. Terry Gilliam, for all his faults, um, in the documentary for one of his movies a few years ago, um, said something very sensible uh, and very true. And it's the fact that as long as your internal framework is consistent, you can get away with murder mm-hmm. in terms of bringing in things that are just totally off the wall, completely fantastic, would make no sense in the real world. But you have to have that realistic internal consistency. Well, it's not realism, but, you know, internal consistency. And as long as you've got that internal consistency that your world works according to a set of rules and you don't break them, mm-hmm. then you can throw in all sorts of nonsense, like 
fireballs, giant gods sleeping under the ocean. And people will suspend their disbelief and they will go with you with it. If, however, you set up your rules and then you break them, that will throw people straight out of that world. They will spot the joints and they won't be prepared to sort of give you that leeway to introduce the weird and the wacky. But yet sometimes we introduce the weird and the wacky just because going into the Cthulhu, you know, um, universe without having to go any further, all the mythos are introduced just because they they just exist, you know, they, you know, the shorts are there and so is Cthulhu, so is uh, Naliathotep and Father Dagon. What makes that believable? It's that internal consistency. Uh, it's the fact that they're introduced seriously by the protagonists. They completely believe in them. Um, they're, they're part of that world. They're rooted in that world. Okay. And that framework is there to support those stories. Um, and they're not breaking their own internal logic. So gotcha. it doesn't work in our world. You know, if somebody walked up to you and said... Niall Athotep's been making me do these things or I've been speaking to the king in yellow. Um, you know, you'd, <laughs> you'd kind of look at them and go, mm, not so sure about that. Yeah, I was um, the new psychiatrist. <laughs> but within that world, because it's just put forward as, well, this is something that happens. Mm -hmm. People question it, but it's there is also that strange acceptance, as I said. So you you go with it. You will suspend your disbelief because there is those underlying rules that's, that remain consistent throughout. Now, in terms of um, making things verosimile, an awful lot of people, I'm talking about also realism, one of the things that I encounter an awful lot is when, uh, you know how I am very much of a social justice warrior and how I like inclusivity, I like diversity, and I like to erase racial and homophobic stereotypes and, uh, you know, misogynistic stereotypes that were very common in the 1920s. And yet people find that, or some people find that completely, not just unrealistic, but inverosimile. They find that impossible to fit it. How how can that be broken so it can actually be something that's you know it just didn't happen exposure i mean the half the problem is that people are just taught the white viewpoint of history the straight viewpoint of history there's a huge amount of stuff that has just been written out of the history books because it wasn't convenient mm. for the people in charge to have everybody know about it um, and obviously there are people who are way more qualified than me and you to talk about this um, but you know there are some the, the material is out there are there are some fantastic threads on twitter that go through um, lgbt history uh, black history it's black history month at the moment um, they're always worth following and learning and this is it it's the fact that things have been erased forgotten deliberately excluded so that people just aren't aware of them. So if we can get people aware of them and used to the fact that, you know, it wasn't just a white Anglo-Saxon male wandering around the world doing this sort of thing, um, or straight white Anglo-Saxon male wandering around doing this sort of thing, then 
obviously I think that's going to change people's viewpoints. Uh, they're going to, you know, realise that it's not that way and never has been. Um, and, you know, it, it gets boring after a while just hearing the same story. There are so many more interesting stories out there that we haven't been told over and over and mm -hmm. over again in a variety of forms. Um, so, you know, let's let's celebrate everybody's contribution to history and let's enjoy other people's stories for a change instead of just treading over the same ones over and over again. Uh, do you think that adding, uh, for instance, um, making the matriarchy uh, very similar in games uh, or in a particular game to people, how much does it matter whether you are rooted in reality or not? Let's let's put, for instance, that uh, source and uh, chivalry, sorcery and chivalry, which has been uh, published the fifth edition all the time at all ago and i know that it has been looked into by proper scholars of medieval history and society and they have included an awful lot of the tropes that most people consider to be false as true and real because they were they have studied them and they've decided you know these things were actually happening how much does it matter oh sorry what i'm trying to ask is what would be better to actually tell people who don't want to believe in the Middle Ages, this used to happen, or to tell them in our Middle Ages, this used to happen because this is, after all, fantasy. Well, it depends on what you're going for. Um, to be honest, I think pointing out that this was real um, is going to expand people's viewpoints and people's understanding, which is always a good thing. Um, People often don't know enough about their history, as we've already said, and people don't know enough about the roles of women and everybody else in certain historical periods. Part of that is genuinely because quite often the historical records don't survive for anyone who wasn't nobility uh, or they're hard to access. Um, so there is an, an information bias towards what people learn and, you know, the juicy, exciting bits of history that tend to get picked up on. Um, I have no problems with you pointing out, you know, if some idiot comes up to you and says, oh, that's not right, that's not real, and you can point them at the source and go, I think you're fine, um, <laughs> to turn their own words against them. Um, I have real, really no problem with that. But then again, if you want to, and you're not up for that fight, not everybody is able sure. or capable of holding that conversation mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, just going, well, that's how it is in our world. It's a game. And that's the core thing we have to remember. Our primary purpose isn't to teach history. That's just a nice side effect. Our purpose is to create a believable world with believable stories that people can contribute to and build with their friends. As an editor, how do you draw the line? I mean, at what point did you look at some text and go back to the author uh, and have a chat? And to, to tell them, you know, <laughs> you may want to reconsider this chapter. Oh, that's a how long a piece, how long is a piece of string question. <laughs> you, there is no hard and fast rule. It really does depend on the author, the subject area, the historical period. Um, some authors get it straight away. Other authors um, won't be accurate enough. Um, so there's that, hang on, that doesn't quite work in this framework because there's something 
quite important is missing um you know is this person actually in this place at a particular mm. time because we will get people writing in going i think you'll find um that you know such and such was not here in this point point there i mean quite often and and i know i've done it in several of my books is i've put yes hello historical note i've taken a liberty here this is a game mm -hmm. it makes the game work better if we just yep. swap this round so please forgive us but we're not writing history or a travel guide we are writing, hopefully, an entertaining adventure for you to play through. Um, but like I said, it really, really does depend. Um, some authors basically do just focus down really far too hard on the history. And like I said, don't leave an awful lot of room for investigators, characters, whoever, to, to then influence that world. So you, you have to have a word with them. You have to dial it back. Or if it's not too much, you just go in there and sort it out yourself. No. Because uh, the role of the editor, specifically with the, the kind of talent that you have, you're the, the gap finder. Um, I know that it's a role that is uh, mostly ignored, forgotten, and very, very, very much neglected by authors who just want to have their work out there. And uh, you're there to make sure that that work is actually as good as it possibly can be. So I think we should start some sort of campaign to make sure that uh, you are given the best work that they can possibly produce before it gets to your hand. So let's talk a little bit about some points that people should keep in mind to keep a balance between realism and verisimilitude in their work before it gets to you. What's the first thing that you look for when you get a manuscript? Has the author actually fulfilled the brief that they were contracted to fill? Never. <laughs> Oh, no, that's not fair. Some do. <laughs> I know, I know. Some do. <laughs> Three of them. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just being mean to authors because, you know, they have it too easy. That's not true either. I'm going to get into trouble for this, I tell you. You really are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's assume, though, that they have um, followed the brief. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, they've been very good. They have been the Mike Masons of this world, because I absolutely adore him. And I, I bet that he follows the brief perfectly. I couldn't possibly say otherwise, no, could I? Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> let's assume he does. Okay, Mike, I absolutely adore you, Mike. Um, let's assume that he's, the, the, the author has come to you and actually they have followed the brief okay and they follow the brief to the word count, to page count and to theme. Now what? Um... I mean, that is the big one. Um, have have you left room for the players to do something? Okay. Have you have you set your historical realism so hard and fast that they just don't have any wiggle room to affect the story? But what signs point you at this is not working, there is not enough room in here? What would you read? that would make you feel this needs to be reworked? If you're sitting there as an editor and what you're reading reads like a story. Okay. And that the, the, the characters, the player characters, are basically there to sit and watch the NPCs sorting the plot out between themselves. The moment you see that, you know there's a problem because the players are then just going to sit there while the GM has a conversation with themselves 
and rolls dice for themselves mm -hmm. and the players have nothing to do. That is a massive alarm bell going off there. Um, and quite often that will depend on the writer's background. So you tend to find that people who have come in from a background of writing stories, short stories, novels, things like that, they sometimes forget that this is a collaborative storytelling process. What you really need is a framework that the keeper, the GM, the players then use to build their own story. So they have to have that room. They have to have that ability to influence events, to shape events, to change them, to determine which way the story is going to go. Okay. Um, people who have come in from a story writing background um, tend sometimes forget that. So what you'll read is a lovely story, mm -hmm. but there's nothing for the players to do. There's no way they can really affect it. So at that point, you have to have the conversation and say, think about it, go back and think about this. How can you change this so that the players have agency? Okay. Even if it's just an illusion of agency, they mm -hmm. have to feel like they can influence the plot and where it's going. I was going to I was going to say that because I was wondering if what you look for or should look for all the actually what the author should give you is the situations separate that the players can create the connective tissue between. And that's yes. the agency. Yes. I mean, certainly with investigative games, um, what you're looking to do is provide them with the clues so that they can piece the story together. But the ability to find those clues where they go. So, I mean, particularly with the stuff that I do, I like to make sure that there's always multiple ways that they can get that information. It's not just in one place here. So if they miss that place, that's it. They've missed that part of the story. They have to go somewhere else. You, you have to make sure that there are multiple inroads into that story, multiple ways they can find the information that they need so that they can then move on, develop the plot, find the cultists, give them a good thrashing, save the world. <laughs> Or join them. Or join them even, yes. How many of those, when you say multiple choice, um, multiple ways of doing things, how many of them would you say are recommended for a story to feel that the players have enough agency? Oh, again, that's a piece of string question. Um, again, depends on the complexity of the plot and what you're trying to achieve. Um, so if you have a very compact plot that has a lot of moving parts, you're going to have to have a lot of ways in okay. and a lot of fail safes to make sure that they can get all of that information to figure it out. If you've got a very simple plot, then you're going to need fewer inroads and fewer clues for them to come to a particular um, denouement and work out what's going on. But you can guarantee, no matter how simple you think your plot is, the players are going to complicate it by going off in directions you never, ever thought of. Yes to that. I, I've, I have had some of those experiences. And if you play with children, then it's, it's just a, you know, gloves off kind of situation. It's amazing. Well, I mean, and that's where <laughs> being able um, as a GM to just react on the fly and move things around, mm -hmm. you know, it may well come down to the fact that you have to throw out pretty much everything that's in a scenario to help your players enjoy the sort of like the themes of it, the overarching plot of it, 
but not necessarily in the way that the author wrote it. And that's perfectly fine. Absolutely. This is your game. You're there to enjoy yourselves. And if the players want to go off and do a particular thing, well, there's no harm in that because they're telling you what they want to do and how that what they're enjoying at the point in time. Absolutely. I mean, I've always said to an awful lot of people in this world that as soon as you publish your game or your adventure, it's no longer yours. It's your oh, play. Precisely, yes. You know, that's, that's it. You forget about it because it's, they're going to do with it whatever they want. And it's the weirdest thing in the world listening. I've only tried it a couple of times and I find it very, very odd. It's listening to people playing a scenario I've written. It's actually <laughs> even weirder than listening to yourself on a podcast because you're sitting there thinking, did, did I actually... I don't remember writing that. That's a really good idea. Oh, no, that's definitely not one of mine. They, they came up with something better than I did. Damn them. <laughs> now, going back to um, the work of, you know, the, the, the gap finder, does, do the authors tell you, hey, the thinking behind this is so and so and so and so, to, to have you ready for the way they have designed or written down the adventure? Some do. Some don't. Sometimes you do look at a manuscript and you think, now why on earth have they done that? Because they've done the classic of not getting somebody else to read it for them first. Okay. Which isn't always possible. But you, because you are intimately involved with the writing, you know the plot in your own head, you've probably playtested it yourself and run it, you fill in gaps. Mm -hmm. that you don't realise are gaps. Okay. So you might write something down and you know what you think you've written mm -hmm. and you might think you've covered everything and it's like a really coherent plot and it covers all the bases and there's no gaps whatsoever. There's no strange leaps of logic as to how a person gets from one place to another. But the thing is, what you've actually written isn't necessarily what you think you've written because you're filling in your own gaps as you're reading it just as you would be filling in those gaps when you were running it. Mm -hmm. So it never hurts if an author has a friend who will do this for them to just get somebody else to look at it first to make sure there aren't those leaps of logic and strange gaps and, and odd things that should be there but aren't. Um, and that's quite often where things fall down. It is because someone thinks they've written something and thinks they've explained something when in actual fact, that's not quite what they've written. And I mean, everybody's guilty of it. I've done it myself. I think it's the same effect that um, we find in graphic design. When mm. you do your own design and you get so involved that you don't realise you've made a mistake. And it is yeah. until your editor tells you, hey, back there, your director says, you know, look at this, you know, you've missed so-and-so and so-and-so. And so -and -so. Like, oh, well, how could I? And yet it's, you're just too close yeah. to it and you, you, don't, you don't notice it. Yeah. Uh, now... In terms of your um, involvement with the author, how do you go about telling the author this is, I want more, I need more of this, and this is not really working? How is, because it's a very important aspect that people forget, and how do you get feedback so it's not condescending, patronizing, or damn, damn pleasant? <laughs> Quite often, it will depend on where the project is. Um, sometimes you just don't have time to go back to the author and say, 
could you just do this for us? For whatever reason, you just need to get it done. And that's when you become the benevolent dictator in chief, (laughs) which was actually my title at Green Ronin on Blue Rose when I was working on that. Um, So you just don't get the chance. So you just have to go, right, no, head down. Let's just sort this out. Most of the time, though, particularly if we've worked with an author from development all the way through, particularly with younger authors, newer authors, um, what I will do is they will send me a draft, I will read through, I will put comments on it, you know, sort of like, have you thought about this? You need to check this. Um, That's not quite working. Have you thought about maybe doing this instead? Um, Why is that character doing this at this particular point in time? Oh, you've only got one way of doing this. Is there any other way that they could find this information? You know, sort of try and sort of ask them questions to get them thinking about what they need to be doing or pointing them at the rule book for particular examples that mm-hmm. they can use. Um, if the monsters aren't quite working, maybe suggesting that they create their own bespoke monster that would actually support the story better. Mm-hmm. Um, or if their monster that they've created isn't working and there is one that would work better that's already established, maybe pointing them at that. So it's just trying to give them feedback and hints and suggestions and ask, asking them questions so that they're, they're um, thinking about what they've done, they're reflecting on what they've done, and then just trying to encourage them to go away and do that. Sometimes authors can do it, sometimes they can't. Sometimes an author will be able to get so far and then can't for whatever reason get any further and then you have to take over and just finish it all off some authors just won't um they just won't engage whatsoever because they they think that you are their enemy um and that is one thing that we need to have in our campaign is that the editor is your friend Mm. because as you mentioned earlier what we're trying to do is make the author look as good as possible we're not out to get them Um, we are there to make them look amazing. And there are very few authors in this world that can turn in a perfect first draft uh, that needs very little doing to it. That is exactly what was asked for. There's usually something somewhere. But you do quite often get people who, for whatever reason, um, think that they are the bee's knees as far as writing is concerned, and they just won't listen. Um, And they're quite often the ones that at the end of the day, you just have to go, nope, looks like it's me fixing this then. How do they take it? Um, I've never actually had any flack back from anyone. Okay. Um, I'm assuming that's because they just don't read it after it's been published. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to propose something else. And I think it's because you're so utterly adorable that no one would ever possibly be upset with you. So. <laughs> Oh, no, that's definitely not true. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the private podcast. <laughs> I can ask you those questions, but not in public. Okay. <laughs> um, we haven't spoken thus far. Um, we have not spoken about the magic word. We haven't spoken at all about the rules. What happens to those whilst you are editing? I mean, do you at some point just say, oh, damn it, I want to change the rules so this can actually fit. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, it depends. Um, quite often, we'll have writers who aren't rule specialists. So one of the other jobs that I get to do as editor is I get to plug the rules in. 
Uh, and sometimes, yes, we do have to tweak things. Sometimes we may have to tweak the scenario to fit an existing rule. Or sometimes we might be able to bring in a new rule to help support that bit of story. Again, it just depends on the circumstances. There is no hard and fast rule, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, so you've you've really got to think on your feet. You've got to keep your eyes open. Um, if I get stuck, I bow to Mike's far superior knowledge. Um, because, you know, there are minutiae in Call of Cthulhu that with him having co-written 7th edition, mm-hmm. um, he is far better placed to, to answer than I am. And certainly that we've been doing quite a bit of that this week as I'm, I'm tweaking various things for an upcoming product. There's been a few rules that the authors have put in that don't quite line up with how things have changed or where we want things to go. So it's been a case of refining, simplifying, tweaking to make sure that everything, again, is consistent. So you've got that in- internal consistency so you don't break people's suspension of dis- disbelief within the world. What do you prefer as a professional? You prefer that the author is familiar with the rules so you don't have to get involved or would you rather if they're not very familiar that they just give you the adventure and you put the rules in? You know, stuck to I, I honestly don't mind either way. Um, you know, if they want to have a stab at it, that's lovely because if they do have a go, that will quite often help them understand the world and the mechanics of the world and how storytelling works in that world which might help them improve their plotting and their writing and their pacing. Mm-hmm. But if they really don't feel up to it, if they've tried and they just go, Lynn, I don't get this help, then I don't mind going back and plugging the rules in for them. Because not everybody's brain works in a mechanistic way. They're mm-hmm. not, not everybody can sort of like see analytically how a rule fits in, what it does, what it's going to do. Can rules break verisimilitude? Yes. If you're using the wrong rules for the story that you're trying to tell, then yes, it can. Very much so. You can have the best rule system in the world, but if you're trying to make it do something it wasn't designed to do by trying to make it tell a type of story that it wasn't designed to support, then it's going to show through badly. How how do you go about it? I mean, how do you go about making sure that the right rule is chosen for the right situation in each adventure, though? Playtesting quite often. Okay. Um, Playtesting very largely and experience after a while. You can spot where something isn't quite right. But at the end of the day, playtesting is one of the great powers that we have to make sure that rules are doing what we need them to do and supporting the type of story that we want to tell with them. Okay, well, we've been at it for about half an hour now, and um, I, I know it's. It, I told you the time goes insanely. You know, it's March already. Um, we're finished, <laughs> and I could I could possibly spend a, a huge amount of time, um, but I reckon the conversation would go on a tangent about how to deal with um, story crafting around verisimilitude, which I'd rather do on another episode so we we should be wrapping it up and i have um just uh, one question regarding uh, realism versus versus verisimilitude and is if there is one thing that people must keep in mind when they are writing to make sure that the work is realistic verisimil coherent what is that one thing that they have to keep in mind 
Is this going to be fun? Okay. Good. Now, to wind up, to wind down, not because we've already wound up quite a lot, to wind down slowly, um, I have three abstract questions that I would like to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. First question is, what is the best advice that no one has ever given you? Oh, heck. Yeah. <laughs> Neil Gaiman struggled with that one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, heck. Um... Now, do you know what? Um... Oh, don't put soda water in gin. Oh, are you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good advice. <laughs> Foul. Yeah, well, okay. you know, I'm different. If, if different companies didn't put different coloured labels on their bottles, there wouldn't have been an unfortunate soda water tonic water mix-up. Okay. <laughs> oh, you have to tell me that story at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, what's the best mistake that you would like to make again? Oh, um... Gosh, it's been a long life. There's been quite a few, actually. Um... Gosh, you really are mean. These are terrible. I told you they were very strange. I thought you were such a sweet person as well. Um, best mistake I'd like to make again. Um, it wasn't really a mistake. Um, it was more sort of like... Didn't really know what else to put on. And of course that would be putting on my Seattle Seahawks top to go down to my first night freshest party at university. Okay. Well, that's how I got into role-playing. Oh. Okay, I I, th- I feel like I need to know more about this. <laughs> well, I'd heard of role playing. Okay. I wanted to get involved with it. I didn't know anyone, or at least I th- didn't think I knew anybody who was into role playing at my school. So I went to university. I was in Ethel Williams Hall of Residence at Newcastle. Now, unfortunately, long demolished. Um, and um, it was the first night freshest party, and I'd just moved in. I had no idea what to wear, so I chucked on my Seattle Seahawks top and I went down to the party and there were a group of guys there who were on Newcastle University's American football team who spotted the top and came to talk to me because it wasn't an easy one to get hold of in Britain Okay. and therefore suggested that I might actually be a fan rather than just wearing it as a fashion thing. And they were all role players. Oh, right. And that was how I got into role playing. Now, that is amazing because that didn't go at all the way I thought it was going to go. I thought that you were actually going to find, I don't know, uh, a, a member of a, a group of people from another team that you actually had to befriend to make sure they didn't beat you up or something like that. Oh, no, I did have to hide in the guys' changing room once during a match after I threw a bucket of ice water at the other team's cheerleaders because they were being obnoxious. Um, which is like you said, I'm not that sweet and innocent, Marco. I'm really not. <laughs> Oh, I'd love to have seen that. Okay, um, last question. Um, imagine that you have a time machine. Mm-hmm. 
So you decide, you know, you go back in time and you meet your 10-year-old self and you ask your 10-year-old self, do not do this. What is this? Do you know what? I'm not sure I would. Okay. Because if you're an adherent of the butterfly effect, um, to be quite honest, yeah, I've made some horrific mistakes in my life. Um, but they've all contributed to make me me. And I've kind of got to that point in my life where I'm, I'm mostly okay with that. And if I did anything different, there's a good chance that I wouldn't have met some of the amazing people that I have met. And I wouldn't have had some of the amazing experiences that I have had. And I'm terrible for not wanting to miss things. So, yeah. you know, old me would be afraid that if I went back and said that to 10 year old me, that I'd miss something. And I don't like missing things. I'm ever so nosy. Sorry, na I've got a lot of natural curiosity. It's not nosiness, it's natural curiosity. Okay, I probably would tell myself, don't go to speed parties. <laughs> or something like that. Oh, um, actually, maybe, maybe don't get drunk on blastaways. Okay. That's that's never a good thing. Okay. Do you know what a blastaway is? I do not. It was a big thing in the 90s, um, and it was diamond white cider with castaways, which were the Malibu pineapple juice cocktails in a bottle thing they were lethal you got very drunk on them <laughs> this is all the live role players at durham university's fault i hasten to add um and um yeah i don't tend to get hangovers often but i did the few times i got very very drunk on those things well uh, since i've never been drunk in my life um i'm safe so yeah i wouldn't tell that <laughs> to myself um <laughs> Dr. Hardy, thank you um, so, so much uh, for being here. I'm sorry it's taken so long to invite you to come to, to the show. And I promise it will not take that long in the future. Well, it's been you absolutely know what, delightful. Paco, the, the best things come to those who wait. Not so they say. <laughs> <laughs> so they say. So, well, I look forward to... Um, reading some of the more amazing work that you guys are doing at Chaosium because you you are right now on fire as a company. So We are, yes. Um, and we have some fantastic authors who do do what we ask them to do <laughs> and who are wonderful to work with. Um, just so that none of them get the wrong impression. Is she talking about me? No, I'm not. But what are we? No, 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 no. The, the right answer is maybe I am. Maybe. So make sure you do. <laughs> That's how you keep them in line, you know, uncertainty. Uncertainty is magic. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> a, a role-playing game is a massive team effort. So it's not just the writers, it's the artists, it's the layout people, it's um, the production people, it's the distributors, it's everybody. So it's, it is a huge team effort. Um, and I think sometimes people forget that. Um, the writers and the artists tend to get all the glory, but, you know, there's an awful lot of other people involved there who are helping to make sure that people get good games mm. and interesting things to, to play with their friends. Absolutely, yes. Lynn, thank you so much for, for being with me today. It is truly appreciated. And I will be talking to you very soon. I do hope so. You take care, sweetheart. 
And that's it. Thank you very much indeed for watching and listening to the podcast and the video. And um, please, again, remember to subscribe. Leave me your comments down there. I love to hear what you have to say. Get in touch with me on Twitter. I am at GMS Magazine. And Facebook is always welcome. You have all the links in the show notes and the video description. Thank you once again for being there. Please share this video and podcast. And I will talk to you very soon. Very soon indeed. Take care.